So I have a pastor friend of mine who also serves in a college town, uh, but it's far more of a basketball town than anything else. And uh, he's got a congregant who uh, is particularly vocal about his love of the local basketball team. He's also quite wealthy, which means he's a big contributor to the team. And he's one of those guys he describes as like, no matter what conversation you're in, he's going to kind of find a way to bend the conversation over to the coach, to recruiting, and ah, those refs. Well, back in December, my pastor friend went out to lunch with this guy, and he assumed that they would be talking about basketball. But to my shock, to his shock, uh, the friend looked at him and said to him, you know, honestly, I'm really just not that into it anymore. Frankly, I, I found myself not too excited about this upcoming season. I, I even think I'm going to let my season tickets go this year. Well, my friend's you know, mouth hung open for a second and was like, what in the world happened? Well, he said as they began to talk, he realized that it was the pandemic that had just kind of taken its toll. See, last year, their particular group, like many other uh, uh, schools around the country, did not have any in-person fans, but they piped the fans in, you know, through the sound system. And apparently they determined that the absence of being able to be in this very unique, very communal experience of a loud basketball game in turn caused his passion for the team to wane and eventually to fade. And there's a principle in there somewhere, and that is that if you're unable physically to be there in the presence of the thing that you value the most, then the awe you have for that value is going to go away. It just is. Now, why is that the case? I think it's because basketball arenas function much like the Grove, do they not? This fall, we will all have a chance to return to in-person worship services about six to seven times in the Grove this fall, where we will rally around all of the things that sort of make us unite us as fans, you know, and, and allegiance to the values of what it means to be there. But there's something totally unique about celebrating those things when we are together that is qualitatively different than we did it when we were alone. If you're not in attendance to the crowd, then you end up losing the effect. Look, we're doing a study this particular summer through the idea of spiritual formation. And what we said is, is we're trying to look at what the means are, as well as the goals, of what it is that God wants to form in us. And last week we said that, that, that we have to establish that God wants to bring about transformation. This week, my point is I want to say that we can't enact that transformation if we are not physically together. That this here is essential to it. Why? Well, because in Hebrews 10, you get this unpacking of the power of community beginning in verse 24, when he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Don't stop this, the writer of Hebrews says, because there is a power of attending together with God's people that is just that powerfully formative. And, and for the sake of, of our discussion, I kind of want to overstate this a little bit. I think there's a case to be made that your community is the reason why you believe what you believe. The biblical design for your community is that that source is going to create and support your very embrace of Jesus. There's a real sense in saying your tribe, whatever it is at this moment, is going to be the thing that forms you. I was reading an article last year by a guy named uh, Legaya Mission who wrote for the New York Times with the title, What is a Tribe? 
Listen to what he says. He says, for vast stretches of history, our consciousness was shaped by our connections to the people in closest proximity to us. We were defined not by our hidden interior life, but by our outward gestures, the rituals and markings we share, the the tributes we pay to common ideals of goodness and beauty. Not by what made us different, but by what made us the same. Hey, did you catch the contrast that he just made there? He says to himself, our identity is not something that is only formed by our interior life. But he recognized the fact that that's the way we do it now. You've heard me mention this whole philosophy of expressive individualism and how we live in a day where the only real identity markers are to be found within my interior life. But it wasn't always this way. For generations of human beings, there was a distinct desire to define myself by my group around me and by the people I ran with. Asian cultures, I would make an argument, still have a strong inclination for group identity, which is one of the reasons why they can accomplish so much with the precision that they can. And the reason is because they've tapped tapped into the power of the tribe, the power of community, or, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, the assembling of ourselves together. So Hebrews is saying that attending public worship is essential to the Christian life. We have to prioritize it. But it's so countercultural in a day where, you know, church, church attendance is seen as voluntary at best, that there's good news in this passage, I think, for those who say that the power and centrality of worship is a blessing to us. And I want to unpack it using three ideas here. First of all, I want us to look at what it means to enter in Secondly, the importance of gathering together. And then finally, encouraging one another to participate. Some application at the end. All right, let's take that first one, this idea of entering in. Look, verses 19 through 22 is is, is an amazing, jam-packed theological discussion about the way in which the writer is commending to people of the way to see the world. In other words, it is a deep theological explanation for what we might call what God is fashioning in his people, as his people. And it comes in four phrases that I'm going to get to in just a second. But but before you understand what he's saying, do me a favor, enter into your imagination what you understand about the Old Testament temple. Remember those little things we used to make with toothpicks and popsicle sticks as kids? Go back to that thing, because when Moses was constructing that early tent, If you read back in Exodus very carefully, what you find he was told was that he's building something that he saw firsthand while he was up on Mount Sinai. You remember this? In other words, he was meeting with God and talking with God very freely, and God gave him a blueprint and said, this is the way that I see the world. Now go reproduce that down there in this worship tent. In other words, the temple, tabernacle, was a map of the cosmos, It was the way a believing person, a follower of Yahweh, was seeing the world. So when the writer of Hebrews starts employing these images, he's not just being poetic. What he's trying to say is, this is the way in which we now look in the world that was patterned for us so many thousands of years ago. So therefore, what he's giving to us today is, is he's giving us this inner architecture of the world from God's perspective. Four phrases. Look at these. Number one, he talks about having confidence to enter the holy places. All right, remember, the holy places were these two rooms in the interior portion of the temple. 
The first one was covered in imagery all over the walls and the furniture of the Garden of Eden. And it was its way of saying that not only is this where human beings are coming from, but it's also where we are going to a renewed Garden of Eden one day. And of course, in the very back, there was a room called the Holy of Holies in a perfect shape of a perfect cube where only the high priest could go once a year because God's presence was there, which as it turns out was dangerous. But yes, it was dangerous, but it was the one place that we were supposed to be. All of life considered there in God's presence was the motion of the Christian life was about. Second phrase, it says that we went through the curtain. Okay, that's not, a, that's not a hard image to, fo- to follow. In between the outer room and the inner room inside the tabernacle, there was a heavy, thick curtain draped across it. And the imagery was simple. Man's sin is such that he can't get through to God's presence because of this great barrier. This is why it was made headlines, right? When in Matthew 27, 51, we find that when Jesus breathed his last on the cross... At that moment, that great veil ripped from top to bottom in the temple. Finally, we can have access into his presence. Third phrase, the writer says, there's a great high priest. Well, of course there was. Because when Jesus was on the cross, he was taking on the role of the Old Testament priest there to represent God to, represent the people to God. <laughs> of course, the huge difference was, is when those Old Testament priests came, they had to bring a sacrifice of a lamb, which really only did so much, we find. Jesus was different in that he offered himself as the sacrifice and therefore did something that was applicable to all people in all ages. Fourthly and finally, the writer talks about our hearts being sprinkled clean. You see, this is the result, right? We can draw near to God in assurance and truth. Why? Because our hearts have been sprinkled. Y'all, this is right out of the book of Leviticus where the priest was told to take a scepter and and dip it inside the animal's blood and sprinkle it on the heads of all the people so that they could go home that day knowing, not guessing, not hoping, that they were forgiven. They knew they were forgiven. No more evil conscience to keep us from rejoicing in God's presence. Okay, so you see all this? This is the architecture of the gospel that the writer of Hebrews is trying to build into our imaginations. But if you were a Jewish convert in that day, it would immediately have led to a question. Well, what about the temple, though? What happened to that? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, every time Christians gather, God is present, you ready for this, in the exact same way as he was in the Old Testament. It's the same deal. Wrap your mind around this. What we are doing this morning, sitting here in this room, is exactly the same thing that God intended for those ancient Near Eastern people thousands of years ago. We are living in that presence right now. Of course, the giant difference is is we're on the other side of the Messiah's coming, which of course completes everything that the temple was signifying. But the point is this. This is what connects us to the past, that we're stepping up into everything God was doing in the Old Testament. When When I was in campus ministry for 25 years, I talked to countless students who would ask some version of this question. It was like, you're going to have a hard time there convincing me that some ancient architectural temple thing, I don't know, made of skin pelts or whatever, has anything to do with my life whatsoever. What what possible application might I make from something like that? Well, here's the crazy thing. If what Hebrews is saying is right, 
We are enacting the meaning of the tabernacle right now. Right this very minute. You have stepped up into the midst of it every single week. Now, how? Well, that's a good question, and it brings me to the second point. We've seen what it means to enter in, but now we've got to understand what it means for us to gather together. Because here's the problem. The, the, the idea of the gospel, the idea of this conceptual imagination thing, th that still stays in the realm of the idea. It's too, it's too, too mental. <clears throat> it exists as a function of our mind. But in order to do formation well, like we said last week, these things have to be enacted. Our faith has to be embodied, does it not? And as it turns out, the author of the book of Hebrews, when he unpacks the heart of the gospel, he then talks about the way in which that's enacted, and that is by our gathering together. This is it. So 23 and 24, he mentions holding fast and stirring up is one of the ways in which we enact faith. But it's 25 that packs the real punch when he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now look, <clears throat> for just a moment, and I realize that this can be a bit mundane for some people, but it's important we need to do a little bit of Bible study on that word, especially that we have translated meet together. Turns out that's actually only one Greek word, and it's the Greek word episunagoge. Now, the second part of that word ought to sound a little bit familiar because it sounds like the word synagogue. Synagogue, synagogue, same similarity there. In other words, every Jewish person was used to gathering together with the rest of God's people for scripture reading, for prayers, for singing, uh, for reciting creeds. <clears throat> but what happens here is the author attaches the prefix epi to the word synagogue. What does that mean? Well, Greek scholars who've studied this and written about it will explain that when you use that prefix, what it does is it heightens the idea. Or for our purposes, it, it, it formalizes the idea. It intensifies it and makes it something more intense than what it would normally be. So what Hebrews is saying is this, Jesus has accomplished this amazing access to get into the presence of God as our high priest, so much so that now we don't just meet in a synagogue, we meet in an epi-synagogue. And you're thinking to yourself, what in the world is that? You ready? <laughs> it's the regular, stated, week-in, week-out meeting of God's people that God's leaders have established as the time for us to get together and worship. You're doing it right now. This is what God's intention was. <clears throat> this is the way that we, that we avoid skipping it. This is the way we avoid neglecting it. This is why we build it into the rhythm of our lives. It's the way that we enter in. We draw near to God. Get this. We draw near to God by drawing near to each other which is weirdly counterintuitive. I think for most of us, when we think about drawing near to God, we think about our eyes rolling back in our head and going to some kind of trance. God is not that, not that conceptual. <laughs> He's more earthy. He's more physical because he manifests himself among each other. We enter the meaning of life when we gather together as God's people. It's that big. And so in the Bible's calculus, we have to be in worship together. It's essential to the Christian life. John Wesley, uh, the great founder of Methodism, used to say, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. He's exactly right. Look, think about this last year. I mean, when the lockdown came on, wasn't there just something so wrong about us meeting in isolation? We did whatever we could. We got our living rooms together. You know, we dragged our kids onto the couch, and we watched 
semi-poorly produced videos, right, uh, for worship or some facsimile thereof. But it wasn't right, was it? It wasn't like this. It wasn't like hearing from each other. It wasn't like singing together, but still I've not gotten used to. Like my point is, is there is a unique power to form you into what you are going to be, judging from the tribe you associate yourself with most strongly. So what is it? I recognize there's all kinds of influences on my life, but which one, which one comes the closest to defining you most specifically? Some of us have tribes we have at work. This is where my pals are. I've got work friends. Some of us have groups of people uh, that, are, that are hunting buddies, right? The hunting camp That's where it goes on. And none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. The question, though, is which is most formative? Because when I look back, I realize those things are shaping me. And to whatever degree, the body of Christ is a mere appendage to my life rather than being the hub of the wheel, it's the less growth in grace I'm going to experience. That has to be true. You are going to believe what your crowd tells you to believe. Your group forms you. Now, what is it? That's the question. You know, when I was a teenager, I remember my kids, I mean, my, my parents, being incredibly preoccupied with the group I was hanging out with. Now, look, I know a lot of us get really nervous about the people that our children hang out with, and we suddenly think, oh, this, these kids today, they're corrupting my child. Yeah, maybe that your child had plenty of corruption to start with, but I digress. <clears throat> but the truth is, now I kind of see what they're talking about. My circle of friends create what it means to me to even have the plausibility of believing. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for the body of Christ and us gathering together? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect it. Don't do it. You have to be here. And as much as we always want to provide whatever we can by stream and online, it's not the same. It's not the same. It has to be here, attending. Well, thirdly and finally, what about encouraging one another? Well, let me ask it this way. What are the things that we might say are benefits of attending public worship? I could think of a few of them here. i got three uh, just to list out for you before we leave. The first one is this. Gathering together, it allows us to complete the joy of the Christian life. Now bear with me for a second, what I mean on this. C.S. Lewis has this amazing passage in a little bitty book that he has called The Reflection of the Psalms, where he basically says that one, and, and he's wrestling with this idea of why the psalmist keeps talking about how great it'll be to go to church. And C.S. Lewis was like, or not, because <laughs> that guy's out of tune, and I know what that guy did last week. It just wasn't that great. But what he begins to realize is what really makes it enjoyable is the fact that it's an opportunity to vocalize what I enjoy. Listen to what he says. This is too good not to quote. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise doesn't merely express, but it completes the enjoyment. It's an it is, it is, it's appointed consummation. Listen, and he gives some examples. It's not out of a compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good it is. <laughs> I love this one. He says, or to come suddenly at a turn in the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then they have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch. <laughs> you ever seen that where you're driving around and you get this, look at that sunset. Everybody might be like, I don't know. Just staring at their phones, right? 
It's like, don't you understand? It's, it's the most wonderful thing ever. But it's in the speaking that it gets, that it gets, that it becomes enjoyable. Or he says, to hear a good joke and don't find anybody to share it with. The Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But we shall then know what these things are, and they're the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, he is inviting us to enjoy him. Don't you see what he's saying? Part of the fun of the joy is expressing it. And you're not enjoying it until it's been expressed. And you know what I've noticed? The reversed works, works as well. I can't count how many times I have dragged into church with a list of motives and moods that you don't want to know about, I promise you. But have you ever found yourself being able to sing your way back into a proper frame of mind? You come in, you sit down, you put, see what Randall and the, and the rest of the music team has put together, and for whatever reason, it's the words with the music and the singing and then the recitations and then part of Scripture. And somewhere in there, those things begin to form me. It works both ways. And it may be that one of the reasons why I struggle with the joy in the Christian life is because I'm missing this piece or somehow taking this piece and kind of externalizing, being like, oh, we're at church. Is he almost done? Are we almost there? I'm not trying to say you shouldn't be bored at this. This may be the most boring thing you've sat through. Maybe a boring sermon. But there's something about the anticipation of what I'm bringing into this moment that frames whether I'm going to experience joy. Secondly, not only does it complete the joy, but secondly, it creates a rhythm inside of us when we come to church. Look, the constancy of those motions are a blessing to us. My guess is somewhere in the past, someone convinced you of the necessity of brushing your teeth. And you took that to heart to one degree or the other, but then you were reminded by a dentist that your failure, right, to sort of uh, 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 experience that and make that a regular habit was the very invitation of pain into your life, right? And you realize that I missed out on something because I didn't put that into a habit. Here's the question. What kind of internal world are we developing without the habit of being here? <laughs> because there's something about hearing, about being reminded of God's world, about being reminded that, honestly, I'm not that great. I'm a sinner. But also being reminded that I am absolutely and wonderfully loved and adored by the God of the universe because of Jesus. Somewhere in that rhythm, you know what I get in that rhythm? I, I, get, I, I have the ability to be sustained, to go the distance. How can I not wake up at age 40, 50, 60, 70 and not look around and be like, man, I faded. I, lo I lost who I was in there. Happens every day, does it not? Here's the answer. There's a benefit that God builds in his people who look and say, I don't know, but come hell or high water, I need to be here on Sunday mornings. With God's people, it's different otherwise. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It's dead on. Thirdly and finally, and I've been kind of harping on this lately, coming to public worship means that you're doing, you, you, you are gaining access to your sanity. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, <clears throat> you need to realize Christianity is fading among wealthy white people like ourselves. And what that means is we are about to discover just exactly what kind of preservative genuine faith really is to the culture around us. And no, I'm not referring to the culture war, endless politicization stuff that we've been through in this last two years that passes for Christianity. 
What I'm saying is, is as our nation continues to polarize and we begin to relish and live in this, this cancel culture of finding people and sending them into the outer darkness never to be seen of again without any possibility of them, I don't know, maybe somewhere along the way, having said something that was good. The more that we live in the, mats, in the midst of that, the more we will lack any place whatsoever Will there'll even be an offer for forgiveness. What I'm suggesting is, is in the church is one of the last outposts in our culture of anyone even talking about forgiveness. And there's a generation that's coming up that I think is looking and wondering, is this, is this even possible for us to have a, a society at all where people don't have their smallest mistakes hung over them for forever? I've been quoted a couple of times from Elizabeth Bruning, the Catholic commentator, who said, there's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of mercy. It's exactly right what she's saying. It reminded me of an old German poem, The, the, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yes, the same one that was made uh, by Disney sometime after. And what happens in the story is there's an aging magician who decides to go out for a particular errand, and he leaves his apprentice in charge. Well, on his way out the door, he looks at the apprentice and says, hey, don't forget to you know, finish cleaning. And the apprentice is like, got it. But it takes him about, what, 10 minutes of doing the task, where he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. So what he decides to do is he's going to get all magician on it all, and he casts a spell over a broom so that the broom starts doing his cleaning. And he's thinking, I've got a maid. But eventually what happens is he suddenly realizes that he doesn't know the spell to stop the broom. And before too long, the whole place is covered in water and it's completely destroyed. It's a total mess. And I suddenly thought, that's exactly where we are. We are a generation who sometime, who cares how long ago it was, decided that in the name of human freedom, we were never going to look for truth outside of ourselves. We decided that everything was going to be internally found. The truth is inside you, we're assured. And it feels like such a rush because it means true freedom. But my, my pitch is this. If there's anything the last few decades have been saying, the more we have longed for our freedom, the less free we have become. And the more constrictive we have become. Yeah, we conjured the spell and made the broom dance. We have no idea how to turn this off. But here's the point. How do you, you look and say, well, what do we do? I guess we'll, I don't know, we'll move to Australia. <laughs> no, we, we come and we realize that what this is, is an outpost where we are to be the place that talks about grace. <laughs> the one place where someone might find that it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can come here and find forgiveness. Not to hope for it, not to cross your fingers for it, but to know that grace can abound. That's what we're called to be. Hannah Arndt, Jewish political philosopher, said this, Without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we've done, our capacity to act would, would as it were, be confined to one single deed from which we would never recover. And we would remain the victims of its consequences forever. That's the pall that hangs over this generation. 
And it's the opportunity that we have as we long for God to form us into this image of his glory like we talked about last week. To step up into our role of being a bastion of forgiveness. Not a place full of judgment, but a place of saying, man, you've come to the right place. Because we're a room full of people who've messed up. You've come to the right place. Would to God that we would be such a place. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, give us the grace to see it because frankly, our own hearts struggle so much. We, 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 we wrestle so profoundly with even being able to see the purpose of this. We, we get into those, those rhythms, Father, that, that are more rote than they are meaningful. But would you remind us maybe this morning that here together, this, for your people, this is who we are right here. We are never more ourselves than we sit here and we lift our voices in praise to you. So Lord, we do ask that you would inhabit our praise and hear us this morning as we sing together. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.